Okay, does science contradict the Bible? If you've already looked at your outline, you already know my first slide, and that is, frankly, no. Um, so if, if you'd like to go ahead and leave now, uh, the big question's been answered, uh, but I'm assuming that most people usually want a little bit more detail than that. So we're going to take a little bit of time, and I'm going to, these are the basic questions I'm going to want to spend some time with. Some of these won't be all that in-depth necessarily, but uh, we'll talk about the idea of science and the supernatural. What is modern science specifically? What does it address? What doesn't it address? Talk about the origin of life very briefly. Uh, That is an area that is still much in dispute in the scientific community. Lots of questions, no answers. I'll talk about intelligent design probably for the majority of my time. That is something I spend a majority of my uh, research time as well as writing time involved with. I speak for the Discovery Institute uh, as a fellow, and um, so we'll we'll focus primarily on biology in that. And then we'll talk about Genesis and the different views the age of the earth, uh, the universe, does that contradict Genesis? There are Christians have historically held three very broad categories about how to understand Genesis, and I'll be presenting in broad terms all three of those and giving you some uh, highlights, some of their basic understandings, and then also some of their strengths, weaknesses, and just trying to lay the data out for you. And I'll tell you what I think. I've already covered brain and mind, meat computer. I did that uh, a couple of weeks ago with Jerry Coyne. That's what that was all about. Uh, So we're going to skip that tonight. But then we'll talk about this idea, which still uh, finds its way. I get asked this question quite frequently still. Did Darwin reject evolution before he died? And uh, that's the last thing we'll talk on and touch on. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and, and get started. Is science in some way anti-supernatural? So when you simply ask the question, what is natural science? Well, basically it's answering the hows of nature. How does stuff work? And the roots of modern science, which we'll see briefly, really comes from a Christian worldview. And almost all historians of science will admit at the very least, that Christianity played a significant role, if not the, the most significant role in the formulation of what we call modern science today. Now, with, when you look at Christianity and science, first of all, we see that nature is real and orderly. Man is created in God's image and therefore has the ability to think God's thoughts after him, as one of the early scientists said, and to be able to discover this natural reality. And if the supernatural is a part of reality, then science can tell us some things about God. When you read Romans chapter 1, which we've done recently in in the journey, it was a few months, just last month, uh, verses 18 to 20 basically... Paul says that the unrighteousness of God is being displayed and God is towards the wickedness of men and the righteousness of God is being, is being, discuss, is being displayed. And it says, because that which is evident about God has been made evident to them. So there's something about God that's being suppressed is what verse 18 says. And in verse 19, Paul adds that whatever this is that's being suppressed is evident to people. And he makes it clear, he follows it up by saying, and God made it evident to them. So there's something that's very, very plain 
to all people about God that's being suppressed. And in verse 20, he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his divine power, his power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So he simply says, Look around you. Look at the nighttime sky, look, look, look at the birds, look at, look at, the, look at the grass and, and the bugs and, and just everything about this created order and you will know there is a God. So he's made it plain. But within this pursuit of science, there are definitely some limitations. Science tells us what we can do. Science is not terribly good at telling us what we ought to do. Most scientists make very, rather poor ethicists. They haven't been trained that way. So when the whole debate was, was springing forth about stem cell research, embryonic stem cells, adult stem cells, those within the scientific community should only have been telling us what can be done. Whether it ought to be done is not their forte, is not how they've been trained, it's not what they knew. But yet because they wanted that research to go forward, and they felt, well, I'm the one that understands what I'm doing. You people out there don't. You should just leave me alone. Let me pursue what I want to pursue. Well, that's a very arrogant form and approach to science. So, has science shown that the origin of life doesn't need God? Well, I've given you a little dramatic um, uh, graphic there. There's a a picture up above and a diagram underneath of the rather famous Stanley Miller Harold Urey experiment from 1953. You still do find this experiment mentioned in high school and college biology textbooks, but at least we've badgered them enough that it's only mentioned primarily in a historical context. And it did at least show the way that perhaps this was really possible, that we could have life arising from non-life. So a number of things is, are, were happening in this experiment. They mixed together four particular gases. That was ammonia, methane, water, and hydrogen gas. And in, the, and in this compartment, in this experiment, as you see on that diagram, there was a little flask of boiling water they had that was being heated from underneath and the water then the boiling water created a circulation system and then right after the the boiling water was coming up this the steam was coming up that's when they added the mixture of methane ammonia and hydrogen to that and so then all four gases were circulated around to the upper right where you see a spark chamber and there were just electrically produced sparks that were there to simulate lightning in the early atmosphere. And then the circulation continued to what's called a condenser, where the, the steam then and the gas mixture was cooled. So it would come back down to, to water, and then it was dripped out at the bottom. And whatever products were formed were, were taken out, and they were then to be analyzed. Well, what they found basically, is that they were able to form many organic compounds. That, that simply means things made of carbon, and the carbon was coming from the methane. And they also had some things that contained some nitrogen, amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. There were some sugars, which are the building blocks of carbohydrates, but that's mostly what they got, just a few of those kind of things and lots of other stuff you don't want or need. Um, <clears throat> 
And so they were very encouraged by that because they thought, okay, we've got the building blocks of life just from mixing some chemicals and sparking it. Well, there were a number of problems with this particular experiment, which are still problems in this. uh, This is now 60 years old, and uh, the problems still exist. The early earth gases, the two particularly that would have had a difficult time, are methane and ammonia. Those two would have broken up into their constituent parts, carbon, hydrogen, or nitrogen and hydrogen, None of those are reactive in any way, just by themselves. And the methane and ammonia would have been used up within a few thousand years. So you don't have a million plus years for this process just to go on and and build products and and have stuff accumulate. It's not going to happen. The energy sources, they, they utilized only the sparking to simulate lightning. Now that's a very low energy source. You can't use lightning in the lab, okay? That's, that's highly dangerous. <laughs> so you use something lesser, less powerful, such as sparking, but that doesn't really simulate the early earth. You can get some interesting things happening with just a spark, but you use lightning, it fries everything within a, several feet of it. Um, so how was that really going to be simulating the early earth? Um, there were other energy sources available in the early earth. There were ultraviolet light, both long wave, short wave. There were energy shock waves. There was heat. And what they did in their experiment was they isolated just one. Now, as we've learned since, that was very fortunate because all these other energy sources would have destroyed the very things they were trying to make if indeed they had included them all. So it would have been counterproductive. And the products, the the amino acids, the sugars, all would have been broken down in the atmosphere before they ever made their way down to the surface of the earth because of all these other energy sources. Now the idea was that the amino acids and the sugars were going to collect down in this what they call the prebiotic soup. And uh, mixing all this stuff together and eventually somehow... The amino acids got segregated over here and the sugars got segregated over here because you only want sugars to try to make carbohydrates. And you only can use proteins, I mean amino acids, to make proteins. And you can't have all these things mixing together. But if there was, was such a thing as a prebiotic soup, well, the whole mess would have been in the same bowl. And when that happens, all of these other organic compounds will interact with each other. And you would never had any kind of a start to life because they just interact and it just makes a brown sludge and it's not biologically significant at all. And the last thing, which as I mentioned here is the real killer uh, problem, is that if you have water vapor in the early atmosphere... And every single scenario that they've used, no matter what other chemicals they're using, they all use water. You've got to have some water vapor. Well, we've learned since the Apollo flights, we've known this for decades, obviously, that in the upper atmosphere, when water is struck by ultraviolet light, it breaks apart into hydrogen gas and oxygen gas. And they even suspect now that that's probably the primary source of oxygen on our planet and not photosynthesis. And if you have, therefore, water, you're going to have some level of molecular oxygen. Well, if molecular oxygen is present in any of these experiments, 
the whole reaction doesn't work. It spoils everything. You cannot get amino acid sugars if there's oxygen in the mixture. It's simply not going to work. And so this whole area of research for the chemical origins of life really is in a, in a paradigm crisis. There's probably... Uh, two dozen or so laboratories around the country, who, around the world, who spend their time and most of their energy working on this problem. And each one of them has an independent, individual approach to solving the problem. And all of them will also tell you why the other laboratories are going to fail, because they got this problem, this problem, this problem, that problem. They don't know where to go. There is no centralized paradigm that they're all working from because nothing has worked. Nothing has worked. So if you want to say that um, living things came about through a purely natural chemical process, that is purely a statement of faith. There is no scientific evidence to sustain the idea that life arose from non-life. And your faith is in natural process. You've already made an assumption that natural process is all there is. Therefore, if life is here, it came about by natural process. (laughs) But the evidence for such simply doesn't exist. We don't even have geological evidence of there being any kind of a prebiotic soup or any period on our Earth history where there was some kind of buildup of organic molecules to indicate that any process like this ever even took place. So there's no chemical evidence, there's no geological evidence, and you know that's usually what the scientific world calls faith. <laughs> In their mind, faith is defined as something which you believe for which there is no evidence. As Christians, we don't really accept that definition of faith, but that's their definition, and even by their own definition. Believing in the chemical origin of life is a doctrine of faith. Okay, Genesis. First, I need you to have a better understanding of this word evolution. This is mainly where I think most conversations, uh, most discussions you may have had, most arguments you may have had with people about this, this is where they flounder because the word evolution can mean a number of different things. And unless you understand that you're both using the same definition of the word, you're going to be talking past each other. And I give you six definitions here that, that are used interchangeably in the, in the evolutionary biology community. Evolution can simply mean change over time. They might, well, populations change over time. Well, yeah, they do. I mean, we, we see that all the time. Well, that they're evolving then. Well, what do you mean evolve? Well, change over time. Well, okay. <laughs> if that's your definition of evolution, well, then I'm an evolutionist. Things change over time. Big deal. Second definition Gene frequencies, different types of genes will change in their frequency over time. We've seen that happen too in natural process and natural populations over and over and over again. I studied pocket gophers at the University of North Texas. Their gene frequencies were different from one population to the next. And so yeah, they're changing, but they're still all pocket gophers. They're not if you say they're evolving, well all your meaning is that these 
gene frequencies are flipping a little bit and going back and forth, and it doesn't really mean anything. But yeah, okay, use the word evolve if you want. Third definition, natural populations change in response to environmental changes. Yes, we have lots of factual examples, observations in nature where this sort of thing has happened. Uh, One of the other study groups at North Texas while I was there was studying a minnow population uh, in, in the Brazos River just below the Possum Kingdom Dam. The water that came out of Possum Kingdom Dam was really cold. As it goes downstream, it gets warmer and warmer and warmer. And they discovered a particular gene that had two different forms. One form you found only in the colder water. And as you sampled the populations, as the water warmed, as you went downstream, another form of the gene or allele showed up. And by the time you got to the warmer waters above Lake Whitney, that's all you found. So it appeared that one form of the gene worked better in cold water, and the other form of the gene worked better in the warmer water. Changing gene frequencies over time, responding to the environment. It's the same protein, slightly different form. One works better in cold, one works better in warm. Nothing's really changing. The organism isn't changing, but these genes are in response to an environmental flux. That's evolution to a degree. Fourth definition, new species arising naturally. Again, I use the word fact here. Um, And I only do this, I use that word fact because it simply depends on the definition of the word species. Species, by the way, is the Latin word for the Hebrew word in Genesis, which is translated kind. So in the Latin Vulgate, when they translated from the Hebrew to Latin, they took the word for kind and they used the the Latin word species to determine that. Um, And the, the, the word kind in Genesis doesn't mean our current modern definition of species. That that's a modern definition that doesn't apply to Genesis at all. But what we've seen in natural populations are situations where we can say that a new species has has formed or has arrived. Why why is that? A species simply, and I've just gone over this with my advanced biology class of homeschoolers this last week (laughs) about the different definitions of species, and the biological species concept says a species is a population of organisms that is reproductively isolated from other such populations. Reproductively isolated. Well, they don't interbreed with anybody. There might be other similar-looking groups of organisms nearby, but they don't interbreed. And so if they don't interbreed with them, if there's no gene flow, then this is a separate species. Part of my own research with pocket gophers. We were looking at an eastern race that was here in Texas, east Texas, and into Louisiana, Arkansas. Then there was a western race of the same species, we thought, that was out in west Texas. The west Texas ones were a lot bigger than the ones in east Texas. It's just kind of the way it is in Texas, you know. Um, And so what we were investigating was, are these two, what they were called subspecies, are they interbreeding? So we chose a group of genes, we tested for those, and we actually found several genes that were only one way in the Western race and only another way in the Eastern race, and we found areas of contact and there was no 
gene flow back and forth. They stayed separate. So what that told us is that the eastern smaller race and the western larger race are not interbreeding. So I defied my creationist roots and I agreed to name a new species. So we, we said, there's two species of pocket gophers, not one. But hey, you know what? They're pocket gophers. All we determine is that they're not interbreeding. That is not a big step. That, that is not even an adaptive step. Why they're not interbreeding, we really don't know. We don't know why they don't. They just don't. Were they probably one big kind of pocket gopher? Yeah, most likely. But we've seen that in other groups as well. You think of what we call the dog kind, and almost every creationist I know of will, will, will tell you and will allow for the fact that from the original dog kind, we now have the, the wolf, the coyote, the domestic dog, the African dingo, and the Australian wild dog. Or the Australian dingo and the, and the African wild dog. Maybe even some of the foxes are descended from the exact same kind. So you can have a radiation within the kind, but dogs are not going to evolve into cats, and cats are not going to evolve into rats or mice. Rats stay rats, mice stay mice, and dogs stay dogs. But you can have change. You can have speciation where they become reproductively isolated from other such populations of dog-like animals. We know that the wolf will hybridize with coyotes. Domestic dogs can hybridize with wolves, and they can have fertile offspring. But out in nature, ordinarily, they don't do that. (laughs) They're separate from each other, and they're ordinarily reproductively isolated. So these are four definitions of the word evolution that I would find no objection to. It's these next two that they use these first four If they can get you to agree with one of these first four, well, then in their minds, that automatically means you agree with the next two. (laughs) But the next two are very different sorts of definitions. The first one says all adaptations are due to mutation and natural selection. That's all that's, that's required. That is a theory that takes the observations from those first four and extends it beyond the observations. The last one, all organisms are descended from a common ancestor, a single common ancestor. In other words, life evolved once. It's so incredibly difficult to evolve life from non-life that even they'll tell you it's only going to happen once. So all living things we see are all descended from that initial common ancestor. But again, that's taking these observations in immediate populations, things we can measure here today, and extends it back in their own minds for millions and even a couple of billion years, depending on these same mechanisms to have always operated in the past, and that's all that has operated in the past. So... You end up with some conflicting ideas simply because of the definitions that get used. Um, And if you take away anything from tonight, study these definitions. (laughs) When you're having a conversation about this with someone else, make sure you're talking about the same thing. And ask, okay, if you're going to switch definitions on me, at least turn the turn signal on. and Let me know you're talking about something different. Um, 
this was an imperative for me to have learned once I was in grad school and studying evolution and I had to start sorting my own way through the vocabulary, knowing what I could agree with and what I was not going to agree with. So this is where we'll move to this idea of intelligent design in biology. Because with that, the previous slide here, this fifth definition, all adaptations are due to mutation and natural selection, that is the definition of evolution that intelligent design questions and says, we're not convinced, I'm not convinced, that natural process can bring about the things we see in natural organisms today. So, what is this thing called intelligent design? Well, a couple of things to have clear first of all. In the media, it's often referred to as the latest version of creationism. Simply not true. Any form of creationism always begins with a particular interpretation, understanding of the books of Genesis. It can lead to an old earth, it can lead to a young earth, but from that biblical perspective, then they look at the scientific information and begin placing that into their overall biblical model. Intelligent design, on the other hand, simply looks at the scientific evidence and asks the question, do we see evidence of intelligent cause? A biblical interpretation is not necessary. It's simply a different approach to the scientific evidence. So two ways to define it. It is an intellectual movement that, on the negative side, does challenge Darwinism and its dependence on random chaotic processes, meaning mutation, coupled with natural selection. What we're saying is that that's not sufficient. That's not adequate to explain the things we see in living organisms today. The other part of it is the positive side, and that says intelligent design is also a scientific research program that investigates the effects of intelligent causes. Obviously, that's bolded for a very particular reason, That's the main phrase. What are the effects of intelligent causes? How do we how do we see well how do we notice them, for instance? Well, there's two ways which in the design design theory we refer to that. Two things. There are effects that have a high specificity. What that means is it has to be just this way. If it's just slightly different, it ain't gonna work. The second category is that high specificity is coupled with extremely small probabilities. Really unlikely. Has to be just this way, and the, the, the mathematical odds are really against it. Those are the things that intuitively, as human beings, we ordinarily, well, intelligence was necessary for that. My favorite example is simply winning the lottery. <clears throat> Now, Oh, I keep forgetting to get rid of that extra thing there, so let's do that. Now, I recently gave a talk similar to this in the state of California, and I just happened to ask, uh, does, does California have a state lottery? And of course, somebody in front row knew, oh yeah, yeah, we have one. Uh, what's the odds of winning? And they just, <laughs> they must play, because they knew that the odds of winning the lottery in California are about one chance in 23 million. Now, eventually, somebody wins the lottery. Why? Well, they're the one, but why? 
somebody wins. I'm not talking about a specific person, but somebody eventually wins. Let's say that the initial jackpot, like in Texas, is usually what, $4 million? Nobody wins, what do they do? They raise the amount. And what happens then? More people buy tickets because it's more money. Nobody wins, they raise it again, which entices more people to buy tickets. Now, the odds are the same. <clears throat> what we're simply saying is that the more tickets you sell, the more likely it is that somebody will guess the right combination of numbers. And what we call that are probabilistic resources. Okay? If you sell, probability people will tell you, 10 to 11 million tickets, somebody's going to win. You've basically reduced the odds from 1 in 23 million to 1 in 2. Somebody's going to have the right series of numbers. Okay? Again, that's the probabilistic resources. <clears throat> so we can see that highly improbable events do happen all the time. Somebody wins those big mega million jackpot things, you know, $250, $300 million. Somebody eventually wins those things. But let's drastically lower the probability here and dramatically raise the specificity. Now remember, to win the lottery, you've got to have this set of six numbers. <clears throat> so what do we do? Well, let's say your neighbor has always played the lottery. Uh, every week from the beginning, never won. But they check the paper every week, maybe my ticket this time. Uh, they all use all sorts of methods to choose their six numbers and never win. But one day, your neighbor finally wins the $4 million prize, and they come running out of the front of the house early in the morning after reading the paper, and I won a lottery, I won a lottery, and everybody's waking up, lights are going on, and everybody's excited. You share a fence with them that's broken down, dilapidated. You get a little excited. Maybe he'll fix the fence. Finally, that's somebody you know. That's not just anybody. That's somebody you know, but... They produce the winning ticket. One person wins $4 million. No big deal. Lottery commission is not likely to investigate. No big deal. But what about winning the lottery three weeks in a row with the same set of six numbers? Your neighbor comes running out of the house three weeks in a row, excited. They won the lottery three weeks in a row. And then after you're talking to them for a while, they admit, I use the exact same set of six numbers each time. What are you thinking? You're shaking your head. Why? You don't think it's just chance? Why? What else is going on? You can use the C word. Cheating. <laughs> Somebody's somehow is cheating. What you're suspecting <coughs> is intelligent design. Somebody has intelligently manipulated the system to ensure that these same six numbers won the lottery three weeks in a row. It's intelligent design. We have an extremely now improbable event. We have a high specificity. You immediately went to the conclusion that there was manipulation. There was intelligent design. See, we make those kinds of distinctions in our lives all the time. Some things are clearly just chance, but we look at other things, and uh, that didn't happen by chance. <clears throat> well, how do we do this? 
You suspect cheating, you suspect intelligent design. Well, how, what's the number here? One chance in 23 million times one chance in 23 million times one chance in 23 million, which is one chance in 12 sec- septillion. <laughs> There's never been enough people alive in the history of the earth, in the history of the universe for that matter, to be able to sell enough tickets to to have enough probabilistic resources for somebody to win the lottery three weeks in a row just by chance. The lottery commission is not even going to bother making any calculations. They will investigate because they know somebody cheated. (coughs) Now, there's a probability up there, right? Which means it's possible, right? It's possible. But not a person in here thought that's what happened. You all were suspecting he cheated somehow or somebody cheated for him. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about. You can always come up with a probability number of the possibility of something happening by chance. But sometimes that number is so infinitesimally small and the specificity, got to have the same six numbers, is so high that we don't even think about chance as a causal possibility. It's just not there. It's not going to work. So there's never enough people in the history of of humanity to sell enough tickets. The Lottery Commission will investigate. (coughs) A couple of other ways we discern design. (coughs) You know the one on on the left, Mount Rushmore, If you're good on your American history, you can recognize the four faces, Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, Lincoln. Uh, They match images in our head of past presidents. When you look at it, you can see that the color of the rock is much lighter than the surrounding rock. So those can't be have been exposed to the weather for as long as the other stuff. That's fairly recent. You see all those broken pieces right beneath it. It doesn't take long to figure out that Mount Rushmore did not happen by lightning and wind and erosion. Right? You assume that's intelligent design. You conclude that immediately. But yet you could calculate a probability that that could happen by chance. I guarantee you there's a number somewhere. Next one is from New Hampshire, the old man in the mountain. This picture taken in uh, 2003, I think it was. And from just the right angle, at just the right time of day, looking at it straight on with light behind, you can see the profile of an old man. You see a definite brow, uh, a forehead, you see a nose, you see a mouth, you see a very strong chin. (laughs) All right? But you have to look at it at just this angle. So there's an appearance of design here but we know for sure it wasn't designed because it fell off in 2003. The weathering kind of, uh, it, the face is gone now. <laughs> but if you'd have moved yourself 90 degrees and looked at that rock straight on, you would never have seen a human face. It would not poke out at you at all. You'd have no idea. You have to get it just this right angle. But you look at Mount Rushmore, I don't care what angle you look at it through, you're going to see the evidence of design. So these are the kinds of things we're looking for. Sometimes there can be an appearance of design, but that's not what it is. So what intelligent design is and is not. 
It is the science that studies the signs of intelligence in nature. <coughs> Excuse me. It is not a religious idea that says living things are so complex that a creator is necessary to explain them. That's how the scientific community and the media likes to try to define intelligent design. Well, you guys, you just think things are so complex that you've got to invoke God to explain it. Well, no, I've just explained to you very technically what intelligent design is. <clears throat> so, biological design is where I want to focus. I give you two quotes from two scientists, two biologists. Very revealing. Richard Dawkins, major new atheist, uh, 1996 book, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now, he's going to spend the rest of the 300 pages of his book explaining that things are not designed for a purpose. He's going to tell you how he thinks natural process can do this. But what has he just admitted? When When you look at living things, they look designed. They have that appearance of having been designed for a purpose. They look like they've been designed. And then Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of the DNA molecule, the structure, he says, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but evolved. Now what, therefore, is Francis Crick admitting to? That the observation of design is constantly hitting your head as you're observing living things. Everywhere you turn, things look designed when you're investigating living systems. So it's kind of like you have to go through, you're looking at your microscope and say, oh, not designed, not designed, not designed. You know, you got to keep telling yourself that. So what these two scientists are just frankly admitting is that living things look as if they've been designed. So let's take a little closer look. There's this concept of irreducible complexity. (coughs) Michael B., he introduced it several years ago. He said, something is irreducibly complex if it is composed of two or more necessary parts. Remove one part and function is not just impaired, but destroyed. So something is irreducibly complex if it has at least two parts and both of the parts, or however many parts there are, are absolutely necessary for function. Take any one of those parts away and it's not that it works less efficiently, it just doesn't work at all. Now his clear example of something like this was... Oh, thank you. (laughs) My throat's getting a little dry. I appreciate that. His example was a mousetrap, and here's a picture of one. Uh, I didn't get it out beforehand, but I'm one of the few people that travels with my own mousetrap in my computer case. And a mousetrap has five parts, as you can see. They're all labeled there. You have the base that everything's attached to, and you have a hammer, a spring, and the two pieces that set the trap, you have the holding bar and the catch. 
take any one of these five pieces away and you can't set the trap or there won't be any force and the trap simply doesn't work at all. It's not that you catch fewer mice. You don't catch any mice. All five parts have to be here. Okay? Now, um, let's just say that you're trying to build this by natural selection. And all you've got to start with is a base. And you're hoping to add small little pieces of it as you go along. That's how evolution works, one small piece at a time. Well, how many mice are you catching with a base? Well, let's say you add the spring. Catching any mice yet? No. Add the holding bar. Oh, now? Uh, No, there's no hammer. Holding bar doesn't do any good. Got to have all five parts. The implication is that something that's irreducibly complex, like a mousetrap, cannot be built by evolution. Evolution slow, small, incremental steps. <clears throat> so our question is, do we find irreducibly complex structures in living systems? Thank you, Nathan. <clears throat> Now, here's the way the argument goes. Certain biological features are irreducibly complex. There are no adequate Darwinian explanations for these kinds of features, for the reason I just explained. Intelligent agency does have the causal power to produce these kinds of features. Engineers do it all the time. Therefore, biological features that are irreducibly complex, notice the word, are likely to be designed. We don't say that they have been proved to be designed. It's a very minimal kind of argument, honestly. It's just saying it's likely that this was a designed feature. We're simply saying if it looks designed, as other major biologists say... Well, hey, maybe it is. Maybe. Give us a chance to investigate and see where it goes. The molecular complexity of the cell. Um, I forgot to get sound hooked up for this, Nathan. Is that a possibility even? This is from a DVD from Illustra Media called The Mystery of Life's Origin <clears throat> and The Mystery of Life. And uh, your sound yeah, it's over here. Hey, that's, that's, that's hot stuff. Well, good, <clears throat> good thing your finger wasn't in it. I wasn't kidding. textbook and I saw a drawing of something called a bacterial flagellum with all of its parts in all of its glory. It's had a propeller and the hook region and the, the drive shaft and the motor and I looked at that and I said, that's an outboard motor. That's designed. You know, that's no chance assemblage of, of parts. 
Lee's reaction was not surprising, especially when the bacterial flagellar motor is animated and magnified more than 50,000 times to display the details of its construction and operation. Howard Berg at Harvard has labeled it the most efficient machine in the universe. These machines, some of them are running at 100,000 RPMs and are hardwired into a signal transduction or sensory mechanism so that it's getting feedback from the environment. It's got some tail proteins which act as the propeller. When the flagellum rotates, these push against the water and therefore push the bacterium forward. And the motor uses a flow of acid from outside of the cell to the inside of the cell to power the turning. The bacterial flagellum has two gears, forward and reverse, water-cooled, proton-motive force. It has a stator, it has a rotor, it has a U-joint, it has a drive shaft, it has a propeller. It's not convenient that we give them these names. That's truly their function. In all, about 40 different protein parts are required to build a flagellar motor. Since its discovery, Biologists have tried to understand how a machine of such superb design could have arisen gradually, without foresight or plan, through the biological pathway Darwin envisioned. <laughs> we now know that there are over 100 molecular motors of very different types in our cells. And all of them have features of irreducible complexity. One of the things I didn't mention in the film, he mentioned it can ro some of the uh, flagellar uh, motors can rotate 100,000 RPM. What he didn't mention is that even spinning that with that speed, they can stop in a quarter turn and reverse direction to 100,000 RPM. Try that with the human-designed outboard motor, and it's going to blow up on you. And he said this has been magnified 50,000 times. This is a really, really tiny molecular structure. But how it's put together, how it functions, all the different pieces that are absolutely necessary. Some of them have, have over 40 different proteins that are necessary. Not necessarily for it to function, but in order for it to be built, certain things have to be there and in the right sequence. <clears throat> I love this quote, uh, Chinese scientist uh, writing in a, a review uh, book about the flagellum. <clears throat> Since flagellum is so well designed and beautifully constructed by an ordered assembly pathway, even I, who am not a creationist, by the way, get an awe-inspiring feeling from its divine beauty. It looks designed, doesn't it? <laughs> There's another one who's admitted, this looks designed to me, and I'll, use the, I'll even use the word divine, even if I put it in scare quotes. <clears throat> I just can't avoid the possibility, although I, I, I have to stay with my materialistic roots on that. So let's talk about this idea of complex and specific one more time. These are two assemblages of rocks that you can find on the shore on a beach in, on the island of Maui in Hawaii. This is one of the basalt uh, volcanic beaches, so it's black sand. <clears throat> and you look in the background, and there are literally tens of thousands of rocks, different sizes, different shapes. 
They've all been somewhat rounded by the action of the waves and the water. But they are in a very specific, particular arrangement. And the probability of those same tens of thousands of rocks getting in just that particular arrangement is astonishingly small. It's a very, very small probability. But there they are. Oh, there they are. Some things just get on your computer and they just won't stop, you know? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the probability of that event is very small, but there's no meaning to that assemblage of rocks. It's just a bunch of rocks. And any assemblage would have had the same probability. But you look in the foreground and you see a group of rocks that just looks a little different. <clears throat> it's not as many. Not as complex. Kind of looks like a circle. There's even what looks like an entryway off to the left. Looks like a circle of rocks created for a fire or something. A group of people sit around and talk and enter the circle. But you know, it's maybe 40 rocks. And if you calculated a probability of that happening by chance, you might actually come up with a reasonable number. Even though for us, the circle, it looks designed. Maybe it just has the appearance. But let's say you walk a little further on down the beach and you see this. Did that happen by the action of wind and rain and waves? And What do you think? Is that an appearance of design? It just looks designed or it is? It is designed. And how do you know? You know that intuitively. What your brain is doing, you're seeing precise symbols, letters of our English alphabet. These symbols are arranged in a sequence. The sequence of symbols are grouped into three groups. And those three groups of symbols are also arranged in a sequence to communicate a message. There's information here you know that that didn't happen by chance. That's designed, intelligently designed. Now, who wrote that? Yeah, the women always say John. (laughs) Reality, we don't know. It could have been somebody other than John or Mary. It could have been George. I don't know. Is it true? Maybe. Maybe. But we don't know who these people are. We have no idea whether it's true. But you do know it's intelligently designed. Therefore, a lot of times people want to ask me, well, who is the intelligent designer? So, well, the scientific evidence doesn't tell me who the designer is. The evidence here tells me this is designed. But who wrote that, what it means, whether it's true, this doesn't tell me that. I have to pull in my other theological, philosophical resources to answer that question. My simple answer is that what I see in nature is consistent with the God of the Bible. That's all intelligent design can tell you, okay? But it does tell you it's designed. Who the designer is, you have to arrive at that by by a different route. Biological information. Now, I just showed you a series of letters. Letters arranged into words, 
words eventually arranged into a sentence. John loves Mary. We take sentences, make them into paragraphs, into chapters, into books. And we take books and we make libraries. In the DNA genetic informational code, we do the exact same thing. And there, our letters are what are called nucleotides. There's four of them. (coughs) Excuse me, GCAT. Those four nucleotides are arranged into 64 different combinations of three letters each. And that's called a codon. Those codons are coded code for one of the 20 amino acids. One of them also is a start message, and three of them are also stop messages. But how those three-letter codons are arranged determines the sequence of amino acids in the protein. So you have two languages here. You have the language of DNA, and you have the language of protein. And we use language terms to describe the process. DNA is transcribed into RNA. RNA is translated into protein. We use language terms not because they're convenient, but because they accurately describe what takes place in the cell. DNA is an informational code. And our experience tells us that informational codes only have one source in our experience. Informational codes only arise from an intelligence. As I said, DNA DNA transcribed into RNA, RNA translated into protein. There are dozens of what are called transcription factors that regulate transcription. There's a three-dimensional arrangement of the chromosomes that's specific to various tissues. Uh, There's promoters, enhancers, repressors, all kinds of factors taking place that that make the protein do exactly what the cell needs it to do in exactly the right place for that protein to be. When you look at a a photograph, for instance, of an amoeba, and you see all these little dots and grains, and it just looks like a, a bunch of sand mixed into some jelly. looks very disorganized. It's anything but that. Every one of those specks is a particular molecular machine in the cell, and it's in that location for a very specific reason. There's nothing random or chance about it. There is no junk in the DNA as far as we can tell. Recent evidence is now telling us that 80% of the genome has some kind of function. Evolutionists were telling us just 10 years ago that 98% of our DNA was junk. Left over from evolution, it doesn't do anything. Now we're discovering, oh, no, no, no. It all has a function of some kind, and we're still investigating what that is. Book Signature in the Cell uh, came out a few years ago. The entire process bears every hallmark of intelligent design. It's extremely precise. It has to be just so probabilities of something like that just arranging over time by a chance process is is minuscule. The DNA evidence shows us that there is intelligent design in all living systems. Steve Meyer said in the book, said, eventually became clear to me that intelligent design stood as the only known cause of specified information-rich systems and that therefore intelligent design is the only theory that's giving us the reasonable opportunity to decide how this happened. Solera Genomics, Gene Myers, one of those who helped sequence the human genome, 
<coughs> Excuse me. So we're deliciously complex at the molecular level. We don't understand ourselves yet, which is cool. There's still a metaphysical, magical element. The system is extremely complex. It's like it was designed. Well, there you have it again. <laughs> it's like it was designed. There's a huge intelligence there. I don't see that as being unscientific. Others may, but not me. Again, you see it coming back again and again. It looks like it was designed. Now, what time is it, Nathan? Where are we at? Eight o'clock. Oh, good. I got some time. (laughs) Now, I want to talk about a little bit different type of design. I've gone after the molecular stuff. That's where intelligent design has focused because that's where the probabilities are more accessible to us. But now I'd like... I'm wearing my hawk shirt today. You can, I'm a critter guy. It's just, it's just the way I am. I can do the molecule stuff, but I, I love God's creatures. Um, woodpeckers. <clears throat> woodpeckers are really strange critters. They bang their heads in the trees, and they do it on purpose. Why do woodpeckers bang their heads in the trees? Why do they do that? They want to eat. What, the wood? Oh, Bugs. So they're banging their heads in the trees to do get up bugs? Why? Where are the bugs? They're in the tree. Sometimes they're under the bark. Some woodpeckers, like the pileated one there on the left, just kind of flips off pieces of bark and looks, get, goes for the insects under the bark. The European green woodpecker there on the right is one of those that actually will drill a hole into the wood of the tree to expose tunnels that insects inside the tree have dug out, and then it inserts its tongue and slurps them up you know, from the tunnel. Now, woodpeckers have a number of what biologists call adaptations that allow them to do this. First of all, <coughs> um, I'm going to use my pointer over on this, this screen here. I can only do one at a time. Um, If you look particularly here at the green woodpecker, you can see that the tail feathers are buttressed up against the trunk of the tree. That's because its two feet are also on the tree trunk, and the the tail feathers serve as to make the third leg of a tripod to give it stability as it's banging its head into trees. The two feet are different. Most birds have three toes in the front, one toe in the back to grasp a perch. Woodpeckers have two toes in the front, two toes in the back to grasp the vertical surface of the tree. Um, The bill is not brittle, it won't break, it's not rubbery, it doesn't bend, it's very hard, tough. There's actually a shock absorber behind the bill in front of the skull of cartilage and muscle that absorbs the shock of pounding into the tree, which would ordinarily break the skull. Also, inside the brain, there are, there's a system inside the woodpecker brain that protects the brain from the damage of the constant shock to the head of, pecking in, of, of drumming into the tree. Um, there's also a pretty <clears throat> amazing network of nerves and muscles in the neck to allow for the rapid movement. We usually call it that the, say the woodpecker is drumming because it sounds like a drum roll. Now, our necks and shoulders are not designed for this movement. If you ever headbangers, you've tried it, but you know it's just, 
it hurts after a while. (laughs) We're not designed to do this. But you may have caught it earlier, but all these adaptations are not the most unique thing about woodpeckers. I mentioned the tongue. Some woodpeckers can extend their tongue three to five times the length of their beak as they insert it into the tunnels to grab the insects. Looks a little creepy, right? Um, But this is not quite three to five. Some are actually longer than this. Now, there's a real thick saliva on the tongue. They've got barbs usually on the end of it so that when they insert into the tunnel, they're grabbing the insects, pulling them out, and they they stay on the tongue. But the question is, when you look at the tongue of a parakeet or a robin or a mockingbird, it's a short little thing that doesn't even extend the full length of the beak. Now, when you look at this tongue, it's amazing enough, but now you have to ask a very critical question. That's pretty amazing looking at it when it's all stuck out. Where does it go when it comes back inside the head? Where do you put it? Oh, it doesn't roll up. (laughs) It does something quite unique. I'm going to show you a diagram. You can actually go to a natural history museum. I haven't checked the one here in Dallas, the Pearl Museum. I haven't gone there recently to see if they've got a nice woodpecker skull to see, but you can actually see this. There's the skull here. There's a bone inside your tongue. It's called the hyoid bone. And the hyoid bone here, you can see it. This is the tip of the tongue here. And it comes down, doesn't attach to the lower jaw. It actually makes a loop around the back of the skull, up over the top of the head, and inserts into the right nostril. And here it is in, in the muscular form. Um, What it does is that in here, it actually extends to the very tip of the inside of the upper bill. When it wants to extend its tongue, this attachment loosens, reattaches between the eyes. This big loop here flattens down to the skull. There's actually a loop into the throat. That flattens to the bottom of the skull and out shoots the tongue one, two, three, four, five times the length of the beak. Now, in order to evolve a woodpecker tongue, you've got to do two things at the same time. It's not enough to just make a longer tongue. Let's say you have a mutation, now this this tongue is a millimeter longer or a centimeter longer, and okay, big deal. Because the first time you go to chop a hole and and your your tongue is sticking out, you know, and that's kind of uncomfortable. (laughs) You have to evolve both a longer tongue and a retraction mechanism at the same time. That complicates the probability. It greatly lowers the probability of this event happening by chance alone. So um, lots of adaptations simply to make a woodpecker, but the tongue is the most unusual. Here are some resources in your outline there that you can look to, Probe Ministries, Discovery Institute, uh, ARN, and also the Uncommon Descent blog, uh, which has daily New information put up daily uh, at Discovery Institute. Evolution News and Views is constantly updating new articles about intelligent design and evolution. Now, the last thing, the age of the earth and the dinosaur question. 
three primary views that Christians have held about Genesis. One is the recent or literal view. That's how I refer to it. Next one is progressive creation. Last one is what I call theistic evolution or evolutionary creation. Basic ideas behind recent creation. They hold to what they would say is a very simple, plain reading of the text. Six consecutive 24-hour days. All God's creative work is done in these six days. Pain, suffering, and death all enter the creation after the fall. So that's why specifically they point to that the only thing given to any animal to eat is green plants. There was no carnivory prior to the fall. So there was no death. Noah's flood, and therefore the geology resulting from that, is what is the explanation for almost all of the fossil record. So the fossils are real, but in the recent creation view, the the Noahic flood is extremely critical to their entire model. And then they would claim the earth is maybe 6,000 years old, most likely, and no more perhaps than 10,000 years old. Um, They do that because Bishop Usher, uh, back in I think about the 16th, 17th century, Uh, simply began adding up all the years, the the dates of Genesis 5 and 11, the patriarchs, how long they lived, how old they were when their first uh, child was born, and you follow all the way back. And he he arrived that uh, creation was, I think, uh, first day of creation was Monday, October 6th, 4004 B.C. So that takes you back about 6,000 years from now. Now, progressive creation... Basically, is talking about the days of Genesis as something other than 24-hour days. Maybe indefinite periods of time, could be even millions of billions of years, or it might not even mean a period of time at all. God's creative acts intervene throughout Earth history, so they're not evolutionists, but they do hold to a, a great age. <clears throat> Genesis 1 simply describes God's peak activity for that period of time. And there's something called the structural framework theory, which has a unique perspective um, in that they've noticed that other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts have a similar pattern. They're grouped into, there are six days of work and a day of rest, and the six days are divided up into three groups of two days each. The Genesis pattern is slightly different. The Genesis pattern they see is two groups of three days each. And we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says, and the earth was formless and void. And what they see is that on the first three days of creation, God fills, he, he, he puts form where it was formlessness. Day one, separates light from darkness. Day two, he separates the waters from the waters, puts an expanse in the middle. Day three, he separates the land from the waters and creates the plants. He puts form. On the next three days, he fills the void of those same three spheres he gave form to. So on day four is when he creates the sun, moon, and the stars into where he separated light from darkness. On day five, he creates the fish for the waters, the birds for the air or for the expanse. And on day six, he creates the animals for for the land. So they see a poetic pattern to that. And that's where they, why they would suggest this is not meant to be taken historically. So uh, they, they, can, they can hold to a creation that is of whatever age science tells us. 
But also significantly, pain, suffering, and death is occurring prior to the fall of Adam. This is a major difficulty in this kind of situation. How then do you explain the origin of pain, suffering, and death if it's not due to man's sin? The only other source is God himself. Theistic evolution simply says Genesis 1 is not history, simply communicates an all-powerful God created the universe, does not say how he did it. There's an anti-pagan message aimed at the surrounding cultures because of that. And And one of the main problems here, though, is that as I have studied evolution, it's a very selfish, cruel, and inefficient process. And if God is using evolution as his means to create then what is this telling us about who God is? Any, any artist, the process they go about creating their art tells you something about the worldview of that person. Not just what they end up producing, but how they went about creating it. And the process of creation should also tell us something about God. And this is where I have a problem, primarily theologically, with theistic evolution. <clears throat> there is mystery here. And I want, I want to emphasize that in our quick overview here. I've got an article. I've got some books up here, by the way, that are years free, unless you want to uh, uh, leave a small donation for Probe Ministries. We're trying to reduce our inventory a little bit. <laughs> and one of the books here, Creation, Evolution, Modern Science, has a full chapter on this whole issue of Christian views of science and earth history. gives you more detail. But Francis Schaeffer said, we must take ample time, and sometimes this will mean a long time, to consider whether the apparent clash between science and revelation means that the theory set forth by science is wrong or whether we must reconsider what we thought the Bible says. That's where a little problem comes in for something. What do you mean what, when, what we thought, reconsider what we thought the Bible says? Let me give you a little example. This is Michelangelo's Moses, his sculpture in a church in Florence, very well known. Um, He was sculpted with horns on his head, which you can clearly see in the head here. Um, Why did Michelangelo do that? That just seems pretty odd. Well, at the time, the word describing Moses' face was similar to the root word for goat horns. That's what Michelangelo thought the Bible said. So he sculpted Moses with goat horns on his head. Extra-biblical text used the same word that were discovered later, and the context clearly indicated that the word meant God's radiant glory, not goat horns. And I'm sure there were a lot of priests and bishops and cardinals and popes later said, oh, that makes a whole lot more sense. <sighs> yeah, shining face. Oh, I, now that's why. I, now I see why he had to put a covering over his face. The gold horns is really creeping me out. Uh, it just didn't make any sense. Well, that's what we thought the Bible said. And new information came along and we changed what we thought the Bible had said. And I think there are some things in this Genesis creation account that are still eluding us. There's an, there's a, a, an ancientness to this document that parallels other ancient texts of creation that we still don't understand how they are related to each other. 
how to use others to interpret this one, how to use Genesis to interpret the others. There's still a lot of mystery here for me. And I'm not sure we're at the place where we can concretely say, this is what Genesis 1 is teaching us. So, did Darwin reject evolution? Very quickly, this comes from the testimony of one person, Lady Hope. Darwin died in 1882, and Lady Hope claimed to have visited him privately, and he disowned evolution, saying, I was a young man with unformed ideas. And then she went on the uh, revival circuit and began relaying this conversation, both in England and in America, and this is where the, the story arose. But Darwin's family rejected the scenario. Darwin, typical of his day, wrote letters back and forth all the time to colleagues, and he never mentions any idea of a, of a rejection of his, of his thoughts. So what we have is the testimony of one person and numerous others who deny it. So just even based upon biblical context where it takes the testimony of two or three witnesses, well, we only have one here. So for the most part, we've denied this and said, you know, I don't know where she got it from, but it doesn't seem to be true. Um, I mentioned the dinosaurs. Um, Where the dinosaurs fit depends on whether you're a recent literal creationist or whether you're a progressive creationist. If you're a recent literal creationist, then dinosaurs were alive on the earth at the same time as humans. Their demise was according to the flood. And you say, yeah, but I thought God took, brought two of every kind to bring onto the ark. And some say, well, yeah, he didn't bring adult diplodocus and tyrannosaurs. They were probably juveniles. Um, and they probably went into hibernation. But the climate had changed so dramatically after the flood that they just didn't survive. They needed lots of, a huge volume of food. The volume of food wasn't there when they got off the ark. And they probably just died out very quickly afterwards. If you're a progressive creationist, then the dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago, which is the standard story in, in geology today, um, and th- there's no issue or conflict. So how you think about the dinosaurs strongly depends on your view of the age of the Earth. And <clears throat> the problem most people really have, though, is talking to their kids about it, now, especially if you have sons who are just dinosaur crazy. And we're, my wife and I leave a week from today for the country of Belarus, and we teach at a small Bible college there. Belarus is a former Soviet Union, just north of Ukraine. And we've got a good family there that are friends of ours for a long time. She was my first interpreter, <clears throat> and the wife, and she's got three kids now, and their older son is just dinosaur crazy. <laughs> and um, what I try to tell parents is say, look, you, you explain it as best you understand it. What's your perspective on how to, where the dinosaurs fit? But then at least as best you can, let them know that other Christians think somewhat differently and we're just not really sure. God didn't make it plain. Dinosaurs, as far as we can tell, probably aren't talked about in the Bible. It's possible that in Job 38 and 40, where he talks about behemoth particularly, and then uh, Leviathan, not so much. Leviathan breathed fire, and uh, we're not so sure that was a real <laughs> critter. Um, but uh, behemoth actually sounds like um, a brontosaur-type dinosaur. And is it possible? Well, 
Maybe. If dinosaurs really did go extinct at the time of the flood, then some of them could have survived for a few hundred years after the flood, and we would have had a personal human memory of such things. So it may be possible that those kinds of stories were real, and we actually did see those kind of things. But what do I think about the age of the earth? Uh, I'm, I'm a confirmed fence-sitter. Uh, I'm definitely not a theistic evolutionist, but there's enough mystery for me for both young earth as well as old earth creationism that I don't know which, which, which way to go. So, you had your hand up. <coughs> ah. Also, to go back to the dinosaurs, though, if, if somebody was to say that humans were alive at the same time, why would we have human fossils similar to like the prime dinosaurs? Well, that's another major objection uh, to this young earth model is that essentially what, you're, what they're saying is that all of the fossils that we find in the fossil record were alive on the earth just before the flood because it was the flood that buried them all. And in that kind of chaotic process, you would expect some mixing of communities. So... <clears throat> why don't we find humans, human bones with the dinosaurs? Um, it's a good question. The primary answer to that is that the floodwaters inundated the earth from the sea, so the nearshore communities, and moved up, and humans, along with other large creatures, could avoid the floodwaters for a period of time by going up uh, in elevation. Um, <clears throat> and first of all, because of that, and then secondly, because of sorting once they died, that the intent of the flood was to wipe out humanity, so God destroyed all sign of them. And that the fossils we find in uh, Africa of supposed hominid and ancient humans, those are all post-flood uh, deposits. So, apes and humans that lived after the flood. <clears throat> Hey, hang on for just a second. We're trying to... So what's all this discussion about the God gene? The God gene. Um, well, you see, if you're coming from a fully materialistic perspective, then belief in God has to be somehow genetically wired in. Most humans believe in some kind of spirituality, some kind of God. So their basic idea is that religion evolved as a social structure to help humans survive and reproduce. And if that's the case, then there might be some kind of genetic component that um, Condition some individuals genetically to believe in God more than others. So they've just been curious that perhaps maybe not a single God gene that fosters that idea, but a set of particular genes, certain alternate forms of these kinds of genes that lead, make it easier for an individual to believe that. And that would correspond with Jerry Coyne's idea of a meat computer that everything you think and everything you say you believe is just the arrangement of molecules and biochemical reactions in your brain. You don't really make any decisions. So it just happens biologically according to laws of chemistry and physics of those biological molecules. So are they, are, are they using that 
theory or whatever to explain how, I mean, through all of time and through all the cultures, I mean, there's some commonality between what we consider acceptable and not acceptable. I mean, how many cultures can you, can you cite where murder is 100% yeah. acceptable, no repercussions? I mean, it, is it flowing into that type of thinking? <clears throat> the argument that they use is to say, if you find it everywhere in human cultures, then there must be a selective advantage. So believing that allows you and your surrounding group to survive and reproduce better than others. If you disbelieve that, you're at a disadvantage to the others. So would there be a specific gene for that? No, it's a network of things, and it's a social structure that does depend, however, on a particular genetic makeup to make it possible. Um, However... um, when you start finding that level of agreement, although, I mean, even cannibals, they only, they would, in New Guinea, in Papua New Guinea, they would only eat people from other tribes. You didn't eat somebody from yours. So there was a clear prohibition to murder and eat somebody from your, your village. You don't do that. So there was a clear uh, moral construct there. Um, <coughs> The difficulty with that is that you're relying upon a biological background for which we have no idea it exists. All they're saying is they're simply assuming that natural selection is what's responsible for everything. Therefore, if everybody thinks that way, natural selection selected for it. Well, you're answering your, your question with, with an assumption. You're just assuming you know, there's no real evidence to that. Which gets back to the whole worldview thing that you talked about at the beginning, how, yeah. where you start. Um, yeah, absolutely. Does anybody else have any questions? Yep. Actually, um, twofold. Um, Genesis 1, verse 21, so God created the great sea monsters. Yeah. So to me right there, that's kind of dinosaur-ish, you know? So if you <clears throat> need to talk to your kids. But my yeah. question is... Uh, I have a child, well, a young adult child who raised in the church, uh, accepted Christ early, never questioned. She's at the right age for questioning, I suppose. She's 22. And is actually, um, and that's why I've come to this church Mm -hmm. to to do these classes. She and her boyfriend, who I think is an influence of some sort, are talking about the theory of man evolving from the monkey uh-huh and so my argument is well they're still monkeys and so how does and i haven't seen a monkey yet change into a human okay how how do you how do you argue that um a great resource for you is a short little book that discovery institute put out just called science and human origins and there's a great chapter in that book by casey luskin Science and Human Origins uh, by Discovery Institute Press. And it's five chapters. Casey Luskin's chapter on the paleontology of human remains and human evolution is extremely well done and well written. Um, What you actually have in the fossil record are extinct apes and humans. Different ape forms. 
What the evolutionist says is that humans evolved from an ape-like ancestor. They don't say monkeys. And when you ask the question, well, <clears throat> then how come we still have chimpanzees or how come we still have monkeys if they evolved? Well, <clears throat> again, understanding evolution would say that humans and chimps have, a, have a branched off from a common ancestor. That ancestor is extinct. But you have the two surviving forms of that, but you don't necessarily have all the intermediate forms to show you that process of how they diverged and and what routes they went through. Um, One of the most curious things is that whether you talk about gorilla, chimpanzee, orangutan, gibbon, there is no fossil evidence for those. There's none. Yet they claim supposedly they have all this fossil evidence for pre-humans. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. Um, And one of the things Casey points out is that every organism they try to put at the base of that, the common ancestor, gets tossed out eventually. There's all, oh, the the new missing link. Well, the missing links get tossed out after four or five years. The media just never tells you that. They're always reinterpreted, re-understood. The main one that they talk about is... The the common name you may have heard is Lucy. Uh, She's a fossil that was found in the early 70s. Um, Female. The species is Australopithecus afarensis. Um, It looked like it may have walked slightly upright sometimes. But everything else about Lucy's skeleton from the neck down is ape-like. We we're, we're uh, we have our our chest cavity is pretty much straight up and down. Chimps go outward. Gorillas go outward. Lucy's goes outward. Um, if she walked, it was like chimps do today. It was like this. Chimps can walk upright for a very short period of time, and it looks really weird. I mean, they can do it, but only for a short period of time. Walking upright doesn't say you're intermediate between apes and humans. It, doesn't mean anything like that. So often what, what, she, what people like your daughter are relying upon and her boyfriend are what they've heard in popular level books, maybe what they heard in a biology class or somewhere along the line, but they've never really investigated, okay, what's the actual evidence for this? How does it really break down? Evolution News and Views, by the way, has several articles that correspond to that chapter when it came out answering some of the critics as well. So if you searched on uh, Evolution News and Views for uh, human origins initially, you'll get a number of articles. If it's written by Casey Luskin, it'll be follow-up to criticism his chapter generated, and he answers the critics. Um, So you can find a pretty in-depth back-and-forth conversation about the actual fossil evidence. It's nowhere near as convincing as most people actually think it is.